Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, we are in the aftermath of what has been a very surreal political situation in the U.S., but it's not to be overthought to the extent that there are pretty wild political situations going on across the globe. And so I think that's great segue into my conversation with my guest this week, who is another one of my old friends. I love that I can dig so deep into the crates, as a DJ might say, and just pull out all these wonderful personalities and, and humans that I've worked with in the past and, you know, communed with and just done wonderful mind meets with them. So this week I have my guest is Milton Alimadi. Milton publishes the Black Star News, which is at www.blackstarnews.com. And remember, everything is in the show notes, folks. He is also the author of The Hearts of Darkness, about the history of Western media demonization of Africa. He is as well an adjunct professor of African history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, that's a CUNY school. And he can be heard every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York or at WBAI.org radio as the host of the Black Star News Show. Milton, welcome to the podcast. Hey, comrade, thank you so much for hosting me. Happy New Year. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so well. So let's jump right in, Milton. Tell us more about where you're from. Yes. Where you're local. And what is your craft? Okay. I am from Uganda, born in Uganda. I live in the Bronx, New York, USA. (laughs) Okay. My craft is writing, telling stories getting people to connect, fighting injustice. I think, in fact, that's what attracted me to journalism, to be able to tell stories that generally are not told, to be able to give voice to people who are marginalized when it comes to the media environment. When I started out in journalism, of course, the internet was not in wide use. So you didn't have all these outlets where people could actually get their stories told. Primarily, it was print. So if you didn't have access, for example, here in New York, if you didn't have access to the New York Times, you didn't have access to the Daily News, you didn't have access to the Post or Newsday, that was it. Mm-hmm. Nobody would know what you're going through. Nobody would know your world. And sometimes it's challenging, even as an African person, if you work for the so-called mainstream media. So let me give you an example. When I finished the journalism program at Columbia, One of my first jobs was as a freelance reporter for the New York Times, the Metro Desk. So I would be sent to some communities in uh, East New York, for example, or some parts of the Bronx, some parts of Queens, and I would cover crime stories. The crime rate was much higher in those days during the crack regime, the crack era. And so that became my sort of a specialty. I found out that that was the only thing that the Times was getting me to write about. Mm. But there were people who were doing and living different types of lives in these same neighborhoods, people that were struggling against the system, people that were doing community organizing, people that were trying to launch businesses, even in these challenging environments. So I proposed, I said, listen, why don't I be allowed to do a couple of these stories as well? So even though I would get a verbal approval, I would never be 
given the time to do those kind of stories, you know, because you need time to <laughs> do what is called an enterprise story. But those crime-related stories would come one after the other, one after the other. And those are the only stories I got to do. I got to do. So I became very disappointed. And ultimately, I actually left the New York Times because of that. I found a small paper called The City Sun in Brooklyn. It was an amazing paper doing investigative journalism and telling the stories for African communities, African-Americans that could never get into the Daily News, the New York Times, and all the other publications. So I left, I went there, and when that publication collapsed because the publisher started getting very sick, he was an elderly man, and when he passed on, the paper folded. And that's how I got the inspiration to launch my own publication, Black Star News. And I've been operating Black Star News for more than two decades now, going on three decades. Okay, wow. Almost three decades. Yes. So the news has absolutely, not in the news, but the way that we consume, obviously, and deliver news has changed dramatically in that time. Yes, Right. So from a business perspective, starting a paper, so you worked for a small paper that kind of, you know, busted your chops, kind of understanding that. But tell us more about the process of becoming a publisher and starting a publication and sustaining it for almost 30 years, especially the way that we know that media industry works. Well, it would help to know the lay of the land, of course. And in my case, I'm not sure if I would have launched my own publication. <laughs> had I not worked at the City Sun and had the late Andy Cooper, the publisher, my beloved Conrad, had he not passed on to join the ancestors? I don't know. <laughs> but what motivated me was, I told myself, there's no way after you saw the possibilities of the City Sun that you're going to go back to the New York Times and just cover because a lot of the so-called news is really determined by the editors, mm -hmm. the gatekeepers, the people that determine the agenda mm -hmm. and determine which stories are worth telling and which stories are not worth telling. So mm -hmm. I told myself, there's no way I'm going to go back in that environment. And that's really what propelled me to learn more about the industry, to do my own research, and then to start reaching out to people that I, I, I knew had deep pockets and started mm -hmm. getting the seed capital. And I was able to uh, actually get some uh, seed capital from Camille Cosby. And that's how I uh, launched Black Star News. Of course, it's very different today. Today, with the internet, you have all these, you have millions of outlets around the world. Right. And, and that, of course, presents a challenge in and of itself. Because if you are not really, how should I put it? If you're susceptible and easily impressionable, you can believe a lot of stuff that you shouldn't believe. And that's part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you live in a country where the um, educational, the foundation of the educational system is not solid. It creates a, uh, a major challenge. So in fact, there's some people that have always asked the question, has the internet done more harm than good in terms of informing people? Because you find that there are many people out there who tend to believe what they want to believe, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so if you have, and now this is a challenge of making a distinction between quote unquote legitimate news outlets where people actually 
go through the bother of checking the stories and making sure that it's a credible story and doing some research and doing some interviews, as opposed to people that just set up a website and publish whatever they want to publish, so long as it pushes their agenda. And then they start getting you know, heavy traffic. So <laughs> even though the information is not verified, it's not credible, in many cases, deliberately, intentionally wrong, mm-hmm. the mere fact that they get a lot of traffic, you can't ignore that. So that, in a way, becomes the news itself. And if you don't have that kind of circulation yourself, how then do you challenge that new narrative that sets what may not, should not be accepted as credible? But that becomes the narrative purely because so many people are converging on that particular outlet, mm-hmm. giving it massive traffic. Right. You know, that is the challenge. So yes, the industry has changed tremendously. There are more opportunities. It's easier now to launch a publication. You don't need as much seed capital as back in the day when I was starting out. I think at the end of the day, you find that the outlets that take the time and want to make establish a reputation for really doing serious reporting, I think those are the ones that tend to survive over the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So two things come to mind. One is... When you said you you had to amass a seed capital, and I think that's primarily because there was less internet and you had an actual print publication that you had to, to work around. So, so let's talk about a little bit about that. But then I also want to ask you about education, particularly yeah. education for journalists, because I feel like the fact checking, the quality of the reporting, the integrity of the reporting is something that is actually learned as a craft in some cases. And I feel like maybe there's not as much study, maybe the curriculums are changed. So tell us a little bit about those two aspects. So one is the evolution of the capital and how it works into being able to support print versus now online production, and then also the education piece. Right. Yes. When I started out, print was the primary medium. Mm -hmm. So you needed uh, some significant capital to be able to print on a consistent basis. It didn't matter whether it's daily, yeah, whether it's weekly as we started out. As we actually, we started as a monthly okay. and then evolved into a weekly <laughs> because then you have that overhead. You have to pay the printer on a regular basis. You have to pay the people that put the content together, the writers, the photographers, the people that do the layout. So those were unavoidable costs. Whereas today, if you launch purely online, you can ignore, you don't have to take on some of those uh, costs. Mm-hmm. There's still some cost, of course. You still, you know, if you want good content, then you, you need to compensate. So there's still mm-hmm. cost involved. Sure. And then the people that still update the website on a regular basis, you still need photographers. Mm-hmm. And you need to still pay. So the costs are a bit, I would say, they're not as challenging as mm-hmm. when, it was, when it was purely print. Of course, there's still a market for print as well. In the case of publications such as ours that focuses on specific ethnic demographics. If your reader is primarily African immigrants or African-Americans, Caribbeans, Latinos, there's still a print market for that as well. So it's still worth investing in print publication for that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, because there's so many writers now and uh, you can get in touch with so many writers from all over the country, all over the world, through the internet, it means you can use so many more freelance writers as opposed to back in the day. Right. 
when you know you really relied on on some staff reporters, some staff writers, and that obviously means you had a higher overhead cost as well. So that I think addresses the issue of the cost. Cost So would you say it's half the cost now to be able to put out a publication versus when you first started? Absolutely. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's half or it could even be less. Okay. I mean, if you wanted to do a website and a quarterly print publication, for example, that's another way that you could still yeah, cater to people that still want some print, want to see images on print. You could do that while you have your website as your primary source. Mm-hmm. I think I think publications that have print had to adapt as well. The ones that want to continue in print because they still have a sizable market, they would probably shrink the size of the paper, the physical size, mm-hmm. reduce the number of pages, and you could still make it economically viable Sure. while, while you keep uh, transitioning to purely online. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to the education question, I really appreciate that question. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Yes, I went to uh, the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia, and it was very helpful in terms of teaching me how to report, how to craft the story together. Because as you know, news stories have a particular way that it's packaged with the most important elements being on top of the narrative. Mm-hmm. It's called the lead in journalism. Like parlance. And then as you go further into the story, it's called the inverted pyramid. By the time you get to the end of the story, that is the least relevant or least important aspect of the particular story. So if somebody decided to read only halfway, at least they would get half of the most essential part sure, of sure. the story. You know, So when you're reading about a shooting incident, for example, somebody got killed, you know, you won't read everything from the beginning and only find out at the end that the person that was shot got killed. That would probably be in the first sentence. And that's what the lead essentially means. So those are the kind of things you learn in journalism school. And then are the technical aspect of asking questions and interviewing, you know, you can learn that as well. And then if you did broadcast, you know, the editing and putting it together and all that, that's fine. But to me, the most critical aspect of education, and I have always believed that the best journalists actually may not even be trained as journalists professionally from journalism schools. Mm -hmm. People that are interested pretty much in everything, people that are curious, people that are well-rounded in knowledge, not only of their own communities, but of other communities as well, and the world. So I find people that are more worldly, probably some of the best journalists, unless, of course, you're talking about a specific aspect, like if you're covering medicine, of course, and you happen to be a doctor, then of course, that's specialized. But that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to a general writer, a general reporter, general news reporter, mm-hmm. who's something, somebody who would just like take on any topic and um, do the research, uh, do the interviews, and end up writing a very solid story. That's fine. But I have, in the last couple of years, come to the conclusion that without a knowledge a significant knowledge of history, I don't think it's really possible to consider yourself to be a good journalist. And in the world that we live in, I don't think it's possible to really consider yourself a good journalist if you don't have some understanding of global politics and economics as well. I've been teaching history at John Jay College for the last five years, 
And in doing that, I've done a lot of research, of course, into history and understanding. And I just find that with history, you get to a better understanding of contemporary conditions. So here in the U.S., for example, with a deeper understanding and knowledge of U.S. history, I can understand some of the contemporary issues, even with the whole issue of the storming, the attempted insurrection or attempted coup on the Capitol on January 6th. If you're just coming from, let's say you just came from an African country a week ago, and you don't have a a deeper understanding of U.S. history, you would definitely have a different interpretation of what is going on in Washington, Mm D.C. But given my knowledge of U.S. history, the race issue, the issue of enslavement and the consequences, the unresolved issues stemming from that era, the era of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and even contemporary issues. I have a deeper understanding. I can do better reporting and I can deliver a better product. The same thing goes for Africa. If I'm writing about Africa, obviously, I have a deeper understanding of the African experience, the African engagement with the West, how the West historically divided and colonized Africa, and even the history before that, the history of enslavement, right? But then the formal colonization of Africa, the struggle by Africans to liberate themselves from colonialism, the continuing struggle of Africans to free themselves from the legacy of neocolonialism. In other words, colonialism, formal colonialism, has only been transformed into a new type of colonialism where control over Africa is not maintained anymore by having physical European armed forces on Africa, Mm -hmm. European governors and all that. But now the instruments of change and the instruments have become institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF that impose certain conditionalities on African countries in order to get these loans. That's a new form of colonialism. So with that kind of understanding, I would be able to write on contemporary issues in Africa in a different way as opposed to somebody that does not have that history. So I firmly believe that for any journalism program to be complete, there should be some courses in history. (laughs) So in the United States, have some basics of American history so that Americans themselves know their history and have some world history so that every American at least has a basic understanding of Africa, of Europe, of Asia, of Latin America, of the Caribbean. Then you can be a whole, because it's not something that should be taken lightly to call yourself a journalist, you know? It lends yourself a certain authority. Sure. And I think with that authority should come some basic understanding sure. of, of other peoples as well. Yeah, even to the extent that there's some accountability in being a storyteller of the news, you know, to, yes. to have and to be able to elevate the conversation. And I'm not sure that that's at all, you know, in a judgy kind of way, if I'm saying it, though, that's not elevating conversation. But I feel like as we have more and more voices and more and less informed voices that we keep on spinning our wheels in conversations that are not elevating the conversation, the dialogues, or the people to a level that would address and even, you know, omit things that happened last week. It's hard to add to what you just said. (laughs) That is a statement of fact. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's a time I did not have a TV for, I think, almost maybe eight, nine years. In fact, when did I get TV? I only got TV in November because I wanted to watch the returns of the election this time. Oh, my gosh. It was Donald Trump. 
that forced me to get a television <laughs> after uh, almost eight years of self-imposed embargo. Sure. But I'll tell you something interesting. Before the uh, COVID lockdown, where I used to go to the business library on 34th Street mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that was the one of the few opportunities where I got to watch TV for about 15 minutes or so. Oh, right. In the, the, lobby. You know, yeah. in the lobby where they have all those Screen. channels lined yeah. up on those screens. Mm-hmm. So I watch. I would watch, you know, what they're discussing on MSNBC, CNN. And then let's say if I didn't go to the library for like a month and then I went back again to the same screens, it was so amazing, shocking, but not surprising. It would be like they're still having the same conversation. Right, <laughs> right, right. That they were having about a month or two ago. And I found myself, and that's number one. Number two, I used to be, before I had my own radio show, I was a regular guest on this show on a, a radio station here in New York City. And I was one of the guests. And there would also be two other people on the regular panel. And I found myself, and I'm not saying this to brag, but I believe it sincerely. I found myself to be the person who seemed to be the most informed, number one, and number two, the most original. Mm. I, would, I would actually have my own interpretation and analysis to offer sure. on certain issues because I read a lot. I read, I read the actual, the physical newspapers mm-hmm. or, or physically or online. So I would read and then come to some conclusions. And I found that the other two guests were simply parroting mm-hmm. what was being said on MSNBC or CNN or any other of the uh, broadcast media. It was so shocking. And I couldn't bring myself to tell them, listen, you guys, you know, I think you're depriving yourself of knowledge by not reading. You know? Sure, sure, sure. The, I mean, and that's powerful. And so that, that kind of, you know, hits a nail on the, yeah. the so, head. So not, and that's really scary. Yeah. And these, and these were relatively informed individuals, sure. my, my co-panelists. Yeah. So what, so what about the ordinary person out there yeah. watching TV on a regular basis? and not being able to come to their own interpretation or analysis. And that's why I was able to survive for more than eight years without having a TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even now that I have it, I'm uh, very disciplined. I don't have it on most of the time yeah. I watch, when I want to watch news. Uh, but, you know, I like football. So once in a while. <laughs> and now that the playoffs are, you know, so sure. I do get that. Sure, sure, sure. So let's pivot for a moment. And let me ask you, you're from Uganda. And I yeah. want to know, we want to know, like, where in Uganda. So let me ask you, why the where? So how did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently live? Okay, very good. My family was a political family. And you got that for many years. My father, the late Otema Alimadi, he was one of those pre-independence Uganda nationalists that fought for their country's independence. So he was involved in that anti-colonial movement. And then after independence, my father became ambassador to the United States and to the United Nations. So I actually spent a few years of my early life here in the United States. And then my family returned back to Uganda in the early 1970s, when General Idi Amin took over the government in a coup d'etat. We were there for less than a year. General Amin tried to kill my father. So we had to flee into exile to neighboring country, Tanzania. Mm. And then after Idi Amin was overthrown, my family went back to Uganda. And I'd always wanted to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. I wanted to come to the United States to go to film school. I always had this vision of 
you know, making film, becoming a film director, you know. I did come to the United States, but I didn't get to go to film school because my father said, so long as I'm paying for it, you have to get a real degree. <laughs> so African. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, our African so, parents. <laughs> so, yes. So I ended up getting a, a degree in economics okay. from Syracuse University. Mm-hmm. And then after I, uh, I did that, I came to New York City and I worked for a couple of years as a research analyst at the New York City Department of Sanitation's recycling program. Oh, the recycling was still growing, so they needed uh, researchers to try to match the recyclable waste with companies that had uh, started using the waste to produce products manufactured from uh, recyclable materials. So I did that for a couple of years, but I found that after work every day, I would stay on my computer screen writing letters to the editor complaining about how Africa was being covered in the New York Times or the Daily News or how Haiti was being covered. And some would get published, some would not get published. But then my friends started telling me, listen, you spend so much time doing that. Why don't you become a journalist so that you can actually be on the inside rather than shouting from outside the walls? And I thought that was a good idea. So, and that's when I decided to apply to the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And I got in. And when I was there, you have to do a thesis as well. Mm-hmm. So I selected the topic that had been my deepest passion, even as a, as a youngster when I was 12 years old. When I was 12 in Tanzania, I would always get infuriated when I saw how I used to go to what is called the United States Information Service, where you would get to read all these American publications, the newspapers, magazines. And I was always incensed by the way Africans were referred to as tribal people or tribesmen, mm-hmm. you know, even as a 12-year-old, it really bothered me then. Mm. This representation of Africa is always the other, you know. So I got the opportunity. I said, well, if you're going to do a master's project, why don't you do that as your focus? And that is when I started reading the old clips of New York Times articles dating back to the 1850s when the paper was uh, launched. And when they started writing about Africa around 1877, one of the first items I read was an editorial justifying colonization of Africa. And that, of course, yeah, Britain would be able to, quote unquote, civilize the uh, natives of Africa as if there was not an economic agenda right. <laughs> behind right. it. These are Europeans just coming to enlighten and shed mm-hmm. you know, civilization to Africa. So I read that right up until 20th century, up to the 1990s. Oh, okay. And then I read books. But then I wanted to add another element. I wanted to speak to some of the reporters that I made your paper, like the New York Times, started to send to Africa in the 1950s, 1960s. And I got in touch with the Times and said, could you link me up with some of these reporters? And I was told, you know, it would be difficult. That's way, way before the era where you could just go online and put something sure. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> because they're scattered all over the country, the ones that are retired, and then the librarian told me, said, why don't you go to our archives? I said, and what would I find there? She said, you will find all the correspondence between the reporters we sent to Africa and the editors here in New York. I said, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, so I went to the archive, the physical archives. I forget where it was. It's not main New York Times building. It's somewhere on Fifth Avenue, if I recall. And I met the archivist and he gave me full total access to all these files that I started opening and going through and looked at the names of some of the reporters I knew from my having read the microfilm of the original stories. So I knew their names. I was looking for their files and I started going through the material. And it was just stunning 
some of the writing that I had read from the microfilm, some very racist depiction. But now I found their private correspondence, the letters that they wrote to editors here in New York expressing their own feelings toward Africa and Africans. And the editor, there was one notorious editor in particular, name was Emmanuel Friedman, and he was the foreign news editor for about 16 years at the New York Times, uh, starting from 1948 uh, till sometime in the 1960s. And he was responsible for a lot of the most horrendous depictions of Africans in the New York Times during that long stretch of years. So I was able to find, in fact, I was able to find evidence that in some instances, they inserted incidents that never happened in in Africa just to concoct and give it a more, quote unquote, tribalistic (laughs) image. I'll just give you a few examples. I found a letter by a reporter named Homer Bigart, B-I-G-A-R-T. He's very famous in American journalism. Mm -hmm. He won the Pulitzer Prize, which is the most serious, highest rated award. Mm-hmm. not only for journalism, but for writing as well in the United sure. States. Very prestigious. He won it twice. He was with a paper called the Herald Tribune. That's where he won it before he joined the New York Times. So the New York Times sends him to cover decolonization in Africa. In 1959, he goes to Accra, Ghana, and he writes a letter to his editor, Emmanuel Friedman. And he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, so I can't verbatim quote. But he's saying, I cannot get enthusiastic about the so-called emerging republics. He said the leaders, witch doctors. Uh, He said Kwame Nkrumah is like a Henry Wallace in burnt cork. He said, I uh, pretty much prefer the primitive natives. And then he says, after all, cannibalism may be the best solution for this population explosion that everybody's complaining about. (laughs) So, so, So somebody could say, oh, this is the depraved rants of one individual, right? But then I go and read the articles that he actually, purported articles published in the New York Times. I found another letter that he wrote complaining to his foreign editor, Emmanuel Friedman, that he could not find pygmies. Pygmies are some of the most maligned Africans in all of Western literature. Mm -hmm. He said he could not find pygmies to interview for what independence meant to them. But then when his article appeared in the New York Times, like two days later, he says the Congolese are chanting independence, independence. And he says to the pygmies, independent meats means more beer, more salt, more meat. (laughs) It is just completely depraved. And this is the kind of caricature of Africa that you're getting from the New York Times, when in fact, the Congo had endured the most horrific colonial episode in all of African colonial history. Mm-hmm. Uh, losing up to 10 million Congolese killed under Leopold, and then when it became an official Belgian colony. So instead of looking for some of the descendants of that era to interview them, what it now means to be a free country, get rid of Belgian colonialism, instead the New York Times is busy creating this comical, demeaning, repulsive image of Africa. Right. And let, me, let me give you one more example. I found a letter written in 1966 by a reporter named Lloyd Garrison. He's a descendant of the famous abolitionist, mm-hmm. the Lloyd Garrison. And he had tried to cover the Nigerian civil war from the Biafra side. Mm. 
and ultimately had to leave because I also found some correspondence from the Nigerian embassy to his editor saying something like, if we get a hold of him, we can't guarantee his safety <laughs> because he was giving the Biafra side of the story. And of course, the central government didn't want, you know, they wanted a one side of the story of the conflict. Sure. But, but the other letter I found from him was this. He wrote to Emmanuel Friedman asking him who inserted the description of Nigerian natives dressed in grass leaves in his article, which he never wrote because he never saw it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Calling them out. Thank you. Yeah. Abolitionist blood. <laughs> he, he never saw Nigerians dressed in grass leaves. And he said, you know, to sophisticated Africans, they understand what this means when we do stuff like that. And he said, this is not the first time. He said, in the past, there's also been insertions about tribesmen in my articles. He said, Africans understand what that means. It's very offensive. If you must do something, if you insist on doing, then at least make it tribe, but not tribesmen, which is much worse than tribesmen. But even he himself would not use the term such as tribe or tribesmen. Sure. You know? So this was, you know, clear evidence that, you know, if I'm finding these anecdotal instances, how much more mm -hmm. of what was published uh, purporting to be news articles about Africa was actually concocted. That's going to do it for part one of my conversation with Milton Ali Mahdi. Be sure to join us again next week for part two of our conversation where we dive deep into modern Uganda as well as the Tanzania and Uganda of Milton's childhood. As always, you can catch us at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, many, 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 many places. So please do share, subscribe, talk about it, send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd also want to take a moment to give a shout out to my editing team, which is over at Podatory. Podatory offers professional audio editing and mixing solutions for podcasters. If you're looking for that professional audio touch on your podcast, just head over to their Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podatory. That's P-O-D-I-T-O-R-Y to know more. So as always, thanks for listening and bye for now.